these these psalms are living, breathing attempts from dead people whose names we don't know to try to say, in the midst of this, what can hold me steady? Welcome to Psalms for the Spirit, a podcast about spirituality and resilience through the lens of the biblical psalms. I'm Kieran Young-Wimberly, a Presbyterian minister and spiritual director from the U.S. but living on the north coast of Ireland. I've been working closely with the psalms for over a decade now, arranging, recording, performing psalms set to Celtic melodies, along with my dear friends, the McGrath family from Dungannon, County Tyrone. And through the years, I've heard again and again how the psalms help people through times of trouble, through times when the mountains seem to be falling into the sea, times when the world is in upheaval, either on a personal level or on a collective level. In this podcast, I'm inviting friends and respected teachers to explore with me how the psalms lift our spirits in difficult times, how they lead us toward healing and hope, and about the connection between spirituality and resilience. Today's guest is Padraig Otuma, poet, theologian, host of On Being's Poetry Unbound, and member and former leader of the Corimila community. Padraig doesn't need much of an introduction, as his gifts for writing and reading and reading into poems have become widely known and admired. With his keen sense for the meaning behind a poem, his interest in language, violence, power, and religion, and his background in conflict mediation and peacebuilding, Podrick has a way of seeing deeply into the soul of a poem, and into the people who created them, and into how those poems can help us find grounding in difficult times. I know Podrick from the time we overlapped at Corimila, and when I wanted to talk with somebody about the poetry of the Psalms, who better to ask? And I'm delighted that next year, Podrick will be a virtual guest facilitator on the Resilient Spirit Pilgrimage to Ireland in April 2024, helping us explore the connections between poetry and resilience in our lives. In this conversation, we talk about the language of the Psalms, Psalms in translation, Psalms in Irish, about how the beauty of words put together in a certain way can move us and heal us, and about how even when we might feel all alone, a poem and a prayer and a psalm is a way for us to imagine what it might be like to be listened to and for our deepest selves to be heard. So whatever it is that brought you here, I'm so glad you're with us. How good it is, how good it is when kindred dwell in harmony. How good it is, how good it is for there God blesses us with life forevermore. Like precious Do you like being in New York City right now? Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. I do, actually. Yeah, New York City in the fall. Oh, beautiful. And actually, there, it has notably cooled down. Uh, I mean, it's not cold. It's, it's like an Irish summer day now. Like a hot Irish summer day. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it's lovely. Like 70 degrees or... <laughs> yeah, hot, so, hot. yeah, 70, 80. <laughs> <laughs> that would be boiling. I mean, boiling just right now. like yeah. unbearable. Heat stroke and cork. How's your spirit today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm living in New York City for half a year and um, autumn is coming, which is lovely. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, I've got lots of deadlines of um, poetry books or anthologies. So plenty going on, plenty mm-hmm. um, to juggle. Mm-hmm. And Poetry Unbound will be recording the next season pretty soon. So yeah. Oh, very good. You can, you'll probably hear in New I York. Think I think I just heard a little. <laughs> you did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a a truck. They're beep. very inconsiderate. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, my spirits are good. Thanks. What I tend to ask first is, how did you become familiar with the songs? You know, what was your exposure to them? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was born in 75. So, you know, I, I don't think I knew anybody that didn't go to Mass as a child. Uh-huh. You know, scandalously, their family <laughs> don't go to Mass. Um, I must have. Um, uh, it just goes to show the level of shame that a family in our village would have had to have faced were they known to have not been a family attending Mass. So like every Mass has a responsorial psalm. So mm-hmm. like it just... Mm-hmm. It's just part of my life, my whole life. I was hearing the Psalms being sung on a weekly basis um, since before I could know what I was hearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, those Psalms are arranged into a certain metrical form where somebody will sing a line um, and then everybody will respond to that line. And then they'll sing a verse, like usually mm-hmm. a quatrain, a four line verse, and then people will, will come back with that, with that primary line. And so the Psalms are arranged in that kind of metrical form. Uh, and yeah, there was some that I loved, some that I didn't. Some of them, some of those would have been sung in in English, some in Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the melodies were, were transferable because the, the the metrical arrangement of the psalms. Um, but some of those, like the Sean O'Reardon Mass, had a beautiful setting for for the psalm, um, and so I, I just love that. And so yeah. the, it's so the melodies as well. All the time, yeah, 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 all the time, yeah. And then I suppose I can't remember when I was eight or nine, I joined a choir, and then when I was, you know, just just Sunday morning choir, nothing fancy. Um, and then uh, when I was eleven, I started to play the guitar, so I transferred allegiances from the choir to the folk group. Um, right. So there was a little bit more of a nineteen seventies style mass <laughs> would happen in our parish at eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning. And so I just go along with the guitar for that. So and were there to... any any psalms that would be sung in the, in there? Any always? I mean, of yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, always. We would just play for the thing. One of the women in the choir in the in the folk group had a great. You know, she was a great cantor, just a really good voice for leading a, a leading a congregation. Yeah, so mm. the whole way through. So yeah. was that a, a pleasant experience? You know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't like oh the psalms because some people. I've heard, you know, just grow up with, oh, especially the, um, sometimes the back and forth can be really just kind of boring and yeah. dull. And I mean, I was always figuring out different ways to get different harmonics on the guitar. So <laughs> we had a different agenda, you know, yeah, I was busy figuring out if that's in D, well then, you know, maybe I can just put the capo on on capo five and start oh. playing it in A. So it sounds a little <laughs> bit like a mandolin, you know, accompanying it. So 
<laughs> so I, my attention wasn't exactly on the sounds. I was much more interested in becoming a better guitar player. Um, well, but, you made it sound more beautiful, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, uh, around the age of 11 or 12, that's when I began to get involved in some kind of youth cross-border events, you know. Uh -huh. So it was the first time I met Protestants and they were very definitely saying, you know, what does Psalm 131 say? What does Psalm 42 say? What does Psalm... And I was mm -hmm. like, I have absolutely no idea. Right. You know, so you so wouldn't I have known the numbers necessarily? Not or at all. No, yeah. no, 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 no. And, but yeah, and it, I mean, I suppose you're kind of quickly given the... I think the falsehood that Protestants know the Bible and Catholics don't right. in that kind of, uh, I don't think that that's a helpful way to look at it. I mm -hmm. think half the mm -hmm. time, nobody knows the Bible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, you just, and you just know smatterings of different parts. Mm -hmm. um, so, and also different ways to know it as well. Exactly, I mean, yeah, if you're yeah. singing it and I mean, you were singing the words to the Psalms, you may not have known exactly where they were, but yeah, you still totally. knew them. Totally. And some of the prayers that you had said, you know, prayers that you learned for confirmation, etc., would have essentially been a rendering of a psalm in a certain kind of metrical poetic form. You'd have known that off by heart, but I wouldn't have known it was a psalm. So you, you kind of know liturgy and prayers rather than mm -hmm. being able to quote chapter and yeah. verse. As you say, they're two very different ways of knowing. But. Was there any phrase or any particular psalm that you remember standing out to you at I any point did. in time? Yeah, I always did love the one, I lift my eyes up to the mountains, mm -hmm. where does my help come from? Just because we were brought up going, climbing up mountains or whatever Ireland has that right. passes for a mountain. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, I mean, I, I still love that one because I think mm. who is it in, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, longer, 3000 years ago, perhaps, who just also, uh, it's very recognizably human to just, in the middle of something to look to the mountains and to just get a little bit of solidity from something so solid mm -hmm. um, and ask that question. And I, I, it's the poetry of it. It's the, you know, of course, the Sam goes on to talk about God, etc. But for me, it's that profoundly human moment of I lift my eyes up to the mountains that I love. And I, I feel I feel linked with that um, with that poet, whichever one it was that wrote that uh, in my in my late teens and early 20s, I lived in Drumcondra on the north side of Dublin. And on a clear day, you could see past the city um, and see the Wicklow Hills, the South Dublin and the Wicklow Hills. Yeah. And on, on those clear days, I always thought of whoever, who was it that wrote that line? Because it just gave such um, comfort mm -hmm. to, in the middle of a city to be able to see the mountains, the vistas of which haven't changed mm -hmm. for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I love the poetry of that line. Yeah, and it's amazing how many different stories of people's mountains or hills, you know, mm. like accompany this song, you know, all the different people yeah. who've pictured the hills near them. And, you know, you're saying the Wicklow Mountains. I remember when we were in Belfast, there was a lady who, who used to say it was the, the Black Mountain in Belfast. Mm. That was the, she Beautiful. saw it at her window every day and she said, that was my hill. That was yeah, my hill. Lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from?
I also did love, um, there's another one, Psalm 133, I think it is, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It is like the oil spilling down Aaron's beard. I, there was something so nice about that. In a certain sense, it's a celebration of friendship. I mean, it's, it's kind of about, it's about male friendship. Um, but I always thought that there's something lovely that praises when friendship is easy, how good and pleasant mm-hmm. it is when, when people dwell yeah. together yeah. in unity. Um, cause the Psalms are so full of violence. I, I, I did love that one. I mean, I like the, we can, I'd like to talk about some of the violent ones cause I love those too. But, um, I, I do love yeah. those two. I find oh, great consolation. That's really good. That, you know, that's one that nobody's mentioned. I'm so glad you did. I've actually arranged that one. And, um, when I was looking into that some, I realized that, and I have to go back and see if this is actually accurate, but I, I just, I just went for it because I was like, I love that. I just love it. So apparently the word unity, the Hebrew word unity can also be translated as harmony. So, I, so unity and harmony, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's the same, which I love because I love harmony. So Lovely. it's like, you know, but to mm-hmm. have harmony, mm-hmm. you have to have different parts and you have to have diversity, but to have unity, yeah. um, you don't need to have uniformity. You can be united within, mm-hmm. within diversity. So I said, when kindred dwell in harmony. It's mm-hmm. nice. The um, that psalm, the Irish version of that psalm, you know, the, the, the English rendering of it says, you know, that the, it, it is this place where mm. God gives blessing, and um, and the blessing mm. continues, you know. And in Irish, it says, "Is on the hug on tear na banach thugus baha gabrach," and I love the alliteration in that banach baha gabrach, and so I, I think it's a very nice. Banach's blessing and Baha um, is uh, linked to, to life, Gabrach yeah. for, for forever, you know, for uh, ongoing, oh, ongoing. So it's own the hug on Tirna Banach, the Baha Gabrach. Oh, that's um, beautiful. I, I, I love that. The artistry yeah. of that of that translation, just to give something probably not yeah. faithful to the Hebrew, but um, to give yeah. something that renders yeah. a poetic in the Irish. Um, it's lovely. Oh, thank you for adding that layer. And actually that opening one, that Sam, um, I have loved the Irish translation of it. It starts off by saying, Feich nach ma agus nach evening mach brahra in the coni lakele. And like feich, it's the imperative. Look, you know, um, behold, I suppose. Um, and I, I just love the fech there uh, as the opening up. Yeah, look, behold, watch, mm. see, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. In yeah, that like, kind of, well, and he, that is he, very he, Hebrew, you know. Hebrew is yeah, such an imperative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I love it. You're listening to Psalms for the Spirit, a podcast on spirituality and resilience through the lens of the biblical Psalms. Today I want to highlight a really wonderful opportunity coming up in April 2024, the Resilient Spirit Pilgrimage to Ireland. Consider taking 11 days to come to Ireland to explore what brings us joy, strength, hope, and resilience to our lives. We'll begin with a six-day retreat at the beautiful Corrymeela Residential Centre in Ballycastle on the North Coast, which alone will take your breath away. 
But on top of that, we have a program throughout our stay that's geared toward helping you find resilience within yourself and to develop practices and wisdom that you can take back home with you. Resilience expert Sarah Cook will be our first guest facilitator, followed by the brilliant reflective practitioner Paul Hutchinson. I'll be leading a retreat day with Celtic Psalms music and space for silence and sharing. And then we'll have a session on Zoom with the one and only poet, theologian, poetry unbound creator, member, and former leader of the Corimila community, Padre Gotuma. Pilgrimage participants will then head a few hours south to the stunning hills and ancient monastery of Glendalough, where we'll spend a few days connecting with the beauty of nature and the wisdom of Celtic spirituality before spending a day exploring the vibrant city of Dublin. This is going to be a transformative, uplifting, joyful, and inspiring experience. Come join us on the beautiful north coast of Ireland at the Corimila Centre for the Resilient Spirit Pilgrimage in April 2024. If you're interested, you can find out more in the episode notes. Thanks for listening to Psalms for the Spirit, and once again, I'm so glad you're with us. My Lord and my God, I'll give thanks evermore. Some years ago, you exposed me to Robert Alter's version, which was beautiful and so refreshing to read. But if we could just take a moment to talk about Psalms in Irish and translation, what's lost and gained in translation. I mean, you were familiar with Robert Alter's work, which is very close to the Hebrew. So what do you think about that? Well, I think there is no such thing as a perfect translation and um, it's impossible Um and so you're never looking for a perfect translation. You're looking to see what a translation can do. You know, one of the theories says is that a translated poem is kind of like an offspring of the original mm. with a similarity, but also a distinction, you know, where, where looked at in a certain light, you can go, oh, I can see the profile. And some of them will want to sound like the music of the original. Some of them will want to be very accurate to the, to the down to the word of the original. You know, some of them will want to preserve the shock of the original, etc. Mm-hmm, there's there's mm-hmm. huge there's huge disparities in, in translation theory. Uh, there's some great books where a, a poem will, will be taken from Ukrainian, say, and then four different translations into English will be offered, and and kind of saying actually these four are each very very fine, and but if you were to read the four alongside each other, you might go, God Almighty, what do these have to do with each other? Um, and so it's kind of a way within which you can see how. How, how complex it is to translate something. Mm. But the, you don't just have to be, a, I, I am no translator, um, but like you don't just have to be someone who reads translations to know that. It's, you know, if you were, if I were to say, I was out with my friend last night and my friend said the following thing to me, and then my friend happened to hear that, and my friend might go, no, no, that's not what I said at all. <laughs> I, you know, so it's hard to translate within a language. Let alone between languages. It's hard to translate yourself. You know, when you, somebody says, how do you feel at a difficult time? And you're like, well, oh, I don't know, this, that, and the other. So there's these ways within which experience and communication are in, often in a tense dance with each other. And so within the context of that, I think to know that therefore means that there is great scope for, for breath and play and artistry when it comes mm-hmm. to thinking about the Psalms and different mm-hmm. renderings. So 
like I, you know, much and all as my early experience of the Sams was very pleasant, really, you know, trying to figure out how to do harmonics <laughs> on the guitar, to, you know, um, you know, as years went by, my relationship with the Bible became more influenced by people who were trying to convert me to Protestantism and then using the Bible in a very, very particular way that I did find very oppressive. You right. Know, less so the Psalms, um, mm -hmm. although some of them are a bit frightening, mm -hmm. um, more so some of the other things about homosexuality or mm -hmm. other oppressive things. But that was always in English. And so when I read the Bible, I, I typically will only want to, I mean, I love Robert Alter's translations, but um, I really like turning to the Bible in Irish if I am going to turn to it for exploring the poetry of it, because um, that language was never used to oppress me. Uh. And so therefore, yeah. that's got nothing to do with the original. It's just got to do with experience. And so therefore, I think my relationship with the Bible and Irish is one that has not been moderated through yeah. uh, a kind of colonizing evangelicalism that just yeah. saw Catholics, never mind gay ones, as fodder for mm -hmm. recruitment into, you know, evangelical mm -hmm. heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, I, um, I feel like I can own... And a, pre, a, li, a literary and artistic appreciation of the text mm -hmm. in Irish in a way that doesn't have to have the detritus of pushing mm -hmm. away some of those mm -hmm. associations. Gosh, you know, that's actually such a gift that you have that, you know, that that it's sort of protected in some ways. It's, yeah. it's something precious for you to just engage with it in a completely different way. I mean, I don't come to these texts as a great devout. I come to them as someone who appreciates the art and thinks some artists wrote this and they found a way to preserve it and other artists edited it and compiled it and it is a work of, of community art. You know, I, I come to it from that point of view, not looking for what it points to beyond, but what it points to within in terms of the artistic process that people felt the urgency to write. Robert Alter says, I looked it up just to remind myself, because he writes such great introductions to the Psalms. And he says, he speaks about the Psalms being um, urgent and personally present, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lovely way to describe them. Mm -hmm. And he speaks about them being formally innovative. You know, there's so much poetic structure. He says that he thinks that the Psalms might be among the most innovative texts of the Bible in terms of, you know, some of them are in this form, some of them are in that form. You know, they were probably written over five or six hundred years. So, you know, it's a it's a form that clearly got into people's minds. Some of them were used in ritual and some of them definitely weren't, you know, um, and, and then everything in between. What an amazing compilation, really, of a certain genre of writing. Mm -hmm. And even that genre undoes itself. There's anarchic ones in the middle of it that kind of seem to slam against what it is that the other ones are proposing. Yeah. How fascinating. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, well, that, that leads us right where I, was, I wanted to go with you, which is, which is really to get your understanding of, of the poetry of the Psalms. And, mm. you know, what you just described is like, uh, you obviously know, you know, you can look at it with a poet's eyes, you know, what mm. form are these all taking? And, but just as I hear from so many different people about Psalms that have just 
stuck with them for years and they're and resonate with them so deeply and help them through really, really tough times. And they hold on to these words, these words that are beautiful and meaningful and deep and they need those words, you know, but what is it about the poetry that allows that to happen? I mean, you're asking a question that about poetry in general, mm-hmm. Kieran. And not, yeah. I mean, and we can talk about the sand, but like um, Don Patterson's a Scottish poet, and he wrote, "A poem is a little machine for remembering itself." <laughs> and I love that a little machine. What a delightful <laughs> thing! A little language machine. Um, and in a certain, like I get messages all the time from people who say this terrible thing's happened. We've got to go to a funeral. Do you know, do you know a poem we could read? Um, or this joyous thing has happened or this momentous thing has happened. That's complicated, but not terrible, but not easy either or whatever. Is there a poem? So in a certain sense, people all over the place of all kinds of artistic inclinations or not, are often thinking, is there a small raft of words that can work for a small moment that can carry us just from this shore to another? You're not looking for something that's going to last for life. You're just looking for uh, poems that can speak to a moment. And that's one of the interesting things that the Psalms are, like the 150 of them are gatherings of poems. You know, you can say some of them are poems of of praise. Some of them are poems, you know, clearly to be sung when you're on a, a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. Some of them are poems, you know, of repentance. Some of them are poems of rage, you know. Um, but the diversity of them are just demonstrate the the ordinary concerns of the human person. And sure, that form typically has a turn towards God, you know. Even in the ones to say, this is terrible, that is terrible. My enemies are rising up on my right hand. My other enemies are rising up on my left mm-hmm. hand, but I will praise you, oh God. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> that's always the most boring yeah. part of it for me. You know, <laughs> but, but I will praise you, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, like, I got to add that in there. But. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. If I were an editor, you know, and I do <laughs> a lot of editing, I'd be going, yeah, take that bit out. Like, t- <laughs> tell me more about the enemies. <laughs> but yeah, what can you see? And um, allow the data of your life. But in a certain sense, even to, I mean, I suppose to critique myself in the, but I will praise you, O God, that's a demonstration of form that for, for many of these people who wrote these, that they were aware that somehow the Sam needs to turn to try to have a different relationship with time than the straightened circumstances of war might suggest. And that, I think, is a deep imagination of theoretical physics and also a certain motivational self-talk that is not just looking for a passing fashion, but is trying to say, is there anything stable I can um, stand upon? Mm-hmm. And in that way, God is just the word that's used for the thing that might be a, a centering force. And that interests me enormously to think that these these Psalms are living, breathing attempts from dead people whose names we don't know to try to say, in the midst of this, what can hold me steady? And they use the the technology of the language that refers to God. But that is a technology of the heart to try to imagine something that can hold you steady Mm. in the immediate. Mm -hmm. And I have deep respect for that in the midst of sometimes thinking the way that it it can seem a bit tropish. But I don't actually think it is that tropish. I think there's I have respect for whoever it is that is trying to say um, this is all of this is happening and I'm looking for something to hold me. Yeah. Yeah, and it reminds me of you talking about the Elif Mayas to the mountains, and you you talked about 
We're wanting that stability and that groundedness and it all comes back to what are we grounded in and what's our what's holding us together through all this. see in the Gospels, you can see this interesting thing. Jesus of Nazareth has been um, arrested, abducted by the Romans. He has been tortured and he is he's dying of, of torture on this horrific Roman torture device of the cross. Um, and he, he says a psalm from there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and that is a psalm that I, I heard a scholar say this, so I think it might be true. Um, I've no reason to disbelieve them, um, that this was a psalm often included in night prayer. And so in the night of his life, you know, when he's dying, he just turns to the night poem, the night prayer that he might have said, almost like a reflex. And um, it, it shows it shows that uh, a poetic form can be a container for what's uncontainable. It can bear what's unbearable. Um, and how extraordinary that the tradition had a psalm, had a poem that could do that. And that the all of these poems that reflect the human experience were known. Growing up, we were learning poems off by heart in English and in Irish every week from the age of five to 17 in school. And I don't think we ever learned a children's poem. There were poems about Irish resistance to occupation, poems about the land, poems about language, poems about love, poems about midlife crisis, you know. And I am really grateful for the idea that, you know, that children can cope with the, the, the weighty language involved in, in some of these poems. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning off words and concepts that, of course, I hadn't an I hadn't a clue what they meant. But you just learn them to parrot them off. But I'm glad because there is a repository of language there that has stayed with me, mm -hmm. um, to which I'm in whose debt I am continuing to be. Mm. So um, yeah. I see I, I see that in this character of Jesus of Nazareth too, who had a repository of poetry. Um, to which he could turn in a time of, of torture, facing his own death and distress. And like, and that psalm, I looked it up, this is Robert Aldrin's translation. I call out by day and you do not answer, by night no stillness for me. And then it turns and says, and yet you are the Holy One in whom the Father's trusted. And then it goes back, all who see me mock me, do not be far from me. And then it talks about bulls surrounded me like water I spilled out and all my limbs fell apart and my heart was like wax. Like, who wrote that? What, what distress must that person or that group of people who assembled that have been? You know, my heart was like wax. All my limbs fell apart like water I spilled out. The, the language of it is so powerful. Um, the imagery. 
yeah, I have such respect for the, the poet who put that together. And how interesting that this kind of um, personal lamentation is part of a liturgical tradition, yeah. you know, that it doesn't resolve itself easily. It doesn't make it all neat and tidy, that even though it does do a little bit of a turn to, and yet I will turn to you, it still returns to human experience. And I think one of the things that this shows us is that for all poetry, that there can be a consolation, even in saying how difficult things are, even if you can't see the end to it. And somehow finding a metaphor that can hold you where that poem can look back and remember you mm-hmm. and you can be remembered by it, that there can be a sense to say, even if nobody else is bearing witness to how difficult things are, this poem is. said you needed poetry. I remember using that when I first met you, when I first came to Corimila and you were you were giving us an intro on something. Um, Talking about poetry. I can't remember. What it was. <laughs> um, and then you just, it was just an aside, actually. You just said, I need poetry every day. And yeah, I was like, I wow, do. that's not something I would say. You know, it's that's not mm. something that I would choose to include in my life every day. And, and I guess when it comes to resilience, what is it about poetry that feeds you in that way? Mm. There's something about what language can do that moves me hugely. When you see, like most poems are written by a person alone. And um, when you read a poem, um, like Emily Dickinson, I live my life, a loaded gun. You're like, mm. what does that mean? Mm. Um uh, or um, Martino Diron, an Aran Islands poet, has a line from his poem, Be the Crown, Be Like a Tree. And the line, or the little stanza says, As lonely as a tree is in the middle of the woods, so is a poet among the people. Um, and there's something about it's, I. I I'm I'm not drawn to ask myself as to whether I agree or disagree with Emily Dickinson, that whether her life was like a loaded mm. gun or, or with um, Martino Dijoin as to whether the poet is the loneliest among the people. I think uh, in a certain sense, that's a self-centered assertion, you know, um, mm. but the music of it moved me hugely. We learned that poem off by heart at the age of 11. Mm. And I, it's, it's the combination of language and lament and outrage mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, creativity and it, and that 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 mixture between constraint and freedom both of those moved me hugely and mm-hmm. uh, or not both of those all of those mm-hmm. tensions that's held that are held in the line of a poem move me hugely it, it reminds me what what's possible in language and I don't mean that uh, 
I think people should walk around using impenetrable language. But I think the, the plainest language can often hold within it constraint and freedom and desire and yearning and lament, you know. Mm -hmm. um, is that Langston Hughes has a poem, I miss my friend. That's all I have to say. Mm. Oh, it breaks your heart. And it's um, heartbreaking. Yeah. And so a few more lines to it, but that's essentially, yeah. that's essentially the poem. Mm. Um, and he lived a life of great secrecy as a gay black man who had a very public role, almost like a, a diplomat poet in the 20th century. Like almost like a foreign correspondent in poetry and in politics. He was remarkable. And then there's this quiet little poem, I miss my friend, that's all I have to say. Who was the, who was the friend? Nobody mm. knows, you know. Mm. Um, uh, he also wrote in lots of personas of women. And in a way, you can see him trying to speak about the men in those women's lives, mm. perhaps in the way that he might have wished to have spoken about a man who was or he may have wished to have been in his life. Mm. So you see the role of the imagination mm. and and making things up um, that is at the heart of every poem. And, and like every poem is something that's made. That's what the word means in Greek, a made thing. Oh. And I, I, I think that the, the Psalms too are making a God up to who might be listening in the name of imagining what it might be like to be heard. Right. And that I think is at the heart of every poem. Making, making something, imagining what it would be like to be listened to. Is yeah. that what, yeah. so making up a listener in order to be able, in order to imagine what it might be like to be listened yeah. to. Yeah. That's my reading yeah. of it. I mean, I'm not in any way saying that this was in the heart of the original writers, but I think how powerful it is to have that, yeah. to, to make up something so that therefore in the imagination that some, somebody is paying attention. What is it that I'd say? I mean, I was thinking about this as in preparation for the conversation with Kieran. Like, what is it that we know about the people who, who wrote these Psalms over these 500 years? Mm -hmm. We know that they were unapologetic about the fact that life contains enmity. Mm -hmm. no, um, mm -hmm. We know that they attuned to music. We know that they knew that poetry can be an invitation for all kinds of human experience. We know that um, that somehow they saw um, the question of religion as a place to bring the realities of life, everything from war to celebration and everything in between. We know that they understood that a school of poetry can continue to change and evolve. They, these are very contemporary writers. These are very, mm. very contemporary and also very secular writers in the truest sense of the word secular. 
in the sense of that they were turned towards their times. They were turned toward the daily politics, the daily hungers, the daily joys, the daily demands of time. Uh, we know that they understood human accountability and that they understood what it's like to be under a despot of a leader at times and to wish for better leaders. And we also know that various ones of them loved the night sky mm -hmm. because you see so many references to the night sky. Others of them loved to look at the water. Others of them loved to watch nature, whether that's animals, you know, as the deer yearns for living streams, you know, um, just such attention to what was happening all around them. I think so often the imagination is, is that religion is about turning away from the world and looking at the unlookable. Yeah. And I think the poetry of the Psalms is an invitation to say, to turn to the world yeah. and to see what happens in language and to see what happens in yearning when you do that. And not that that's always a balm. Sometimes it's very difficult, but to do that then anyway, still. Uh, yeah. We have all this data about the, the concerns and the artistic practices of these writers. And I find them so interesting. Often what a poem is, is us eavesdropping into that imagination. And they, they give us such details about life. Um, and like this does tie into that very violent sound, which is <laughs> one of my favorites. You know, um, which one? <laughs> which one? The, very, the famous one. <laughs> the, the baby's heads yeah, yeah, against yeah. the rocks um, one, yeah. So, like, um, uh, in about 590 years before the Common Era, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a tyrant, you know, em imperial king in Babylon, who liked to, he was, like, he was a magpie, really. He liked to collect pretty things. Any, any city he took over, he'd take the artists and the pretty things and bring them all, you know, bring all the, mm -hmm. the interesting things, diplomats, he wanted it all. And he'd leave who he considered the riffraff behind. And so um, I think about 500 miles. So vast swathes of the population of, of Jerusalem were were, were brought from Jerusalem, marched in formation to Babylon, and they were often marched um, with a hook in, your, in their cheek linked to, a, linked to a chain around the neck of the person behind them. And that person with the chain around the neck had a hook in their cheek. So if, if, if you broke rank, you were, you know. Mm -hmm. And some of these people were of the priestly caste, and you couldn't be a priest if you were maimed, and everybody had, everyone was maimed. And also there was this idea, of course, during the time as to, is there a God, the God of everywhere or just the God of our place, <laughs> you know? And so when they got there, they're, they're kind of being treated like caged parrots. Sing, sing, do your pretty things, you know, do your, you know, you're brought here to be interesting and artistic. And, and so you've got this line, by Babylon streams, there we sat and wept, we recalled Zion. On the poplars, there we hung up our lyres, for our captors had asked of us words of song, and our plunderers rejoicing, sing us from Zion songs. How can we sing a song of the Lord in foreign soil? And it's this lament. I mean, how sad. I heard somebody say once, a scholar again, that there were uh, anecdotal poems that said that some people, knowing that they were being taken into exile, brought earth with them in their pockets so that they might have a little bit of the homeland earth upon which to think, because I can hold this earth, I can sing a song to God, because the mm -hmm. God of this earth, not the God of this foreign soil, you know, 
you know, and so hence, how can we sing a song of the Lord on foreign soil? That isn't just a lament, it's, it, and it isn't just a theological question. It was a genuine political question. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we sing a song to our land when we're not in the land? You know, yeah. uh, that is a political question. You can't separate politics and religion in today, never mind two and a half thousand years ago. And so then, you know, there's then the way that this fascinating psalm turns on itself, almost a sense to say, I won't betray, you know, may my tongue cleave to my palate if I do not recall, if I do not set Jerusalem above my chief joy, you know, and all of these recalling, recalling, saying, remember what they were like as they, as they were saying, you know, burn Jerusalem to the ground. And then there's this invective, this magnificent revenge line, daughter of Babylon, the bespoiler, happy who pays you back in kind for what you did to us, happy who seizes your, who seizes and smashes your infants against the rock. Like it is almost, Robert Alter says that this is almost like an anti-Sam, somebody mm. who says, I'm going to write something that nobody will include in this, in this um, category of book. Yeah. You know, I am going to write the, the sonnet that is going to prove that sonnets can't be sung anymore. You know, uh, amazing. And here it is included, this, this piece of, of rage. And when you understand the context from which it comes, you understand that this is, uh, this is showing what it is that we need. We need poetry to be good enough to hold rage. I love that this psalm um, doesn't say, oh, but by the way, I play blessing on them and blah, blah, blah. You know, that this, yeah. this uh, of uh, so many of the psalms doesn't, that's the end of it. Yeah. This psalm doesn't um, resolve itself into something pretty at the end. It just allows itself to say, this is terrible. And this is the terror I've lived through. And that terror has been born in me now and I'm putting it back. Yeah. But interestingly, putting it back into language, which is a creative form yeah. and in a way to look back at it as it looks at you. Um, and, and that I think is a creative way to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, there, there is no evidence at all that anybody was taking the children of Babylon and smashing their heads against the rocks. So right. what a fascinating thing to say, let my language be the container for my rage rather than my actions. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I know exactly. There's something about putting it outside of ourselves, but mm. then what you were saying before about making something that allows you to imagine someone listening even mm. just to be able to say, this is how I'm feeling and it's awful and it's it's terrible mm. and it's now been remembered for thousands of years of being one of the most awful images. But th there must have been something therapeutic in, in some way of of writing that and just expressing it. Yeah. And then and then connecting it with your your background in conflict and mediation and peace building. And you you mentioned there, you know, this is a world that knows there's enemies out there. You know, if we have a space where we can creatively express a range of emotions is that is that helpful you know is that part of yeah. why the psalms have been so helpful to people over the years i think so i mean i don't know if it's helpful it's certainly mm. something that we keep on doing <laughs> so, <laughs> um you can certainly point to that yeah i i hope that it can be helpful I mean, also, of course, we know that that words have power and words can be used as a call to arms that don't just yeah. stop at the words that are an invitation. So uh, that's part of the, the risk and the drama and the danger of, of having a psalm like this, you know, mm -hmm. especially the question is, is therefore, how do you read it? Like if somebody were to read this going, OK, I'm going to use that to justify my my war making actions. What a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, you think of these are people 
upon whom war has been visited. This is not somebody who's on the side of the empire. This is someone who's the, the victim of empire saying, this is what empire has birthed in me, this kind of uh, vengeance, this violence. Um, and I, I think it just shows what happens to the imagination when you're subject to war and what it is we need to externalize. And I see that including this in the corpus of these 150 poems of the Psalms, that there is something there that, that tries to provide a container to, to open up human experience um, in a certain sense to say there's space for you in the poetry of this um, and there's space for so much that you can bring yeah. and uh, to say language can contain it and, and also it's not the final word. Right, yeah. And that we can always imagine that they, mm -hmm. that somehow putting those to words allowed them to imagine a listener and we we continue to do that as well yeah i'm struck by the imagination of that poet who wrote that that they imagined a god who could cope with rage what an interesting artistic imagination that this person had and a god who or a listener who did not need um them to censor themselves by the end or to wrap it up in something pretty or to go oh but i'm not going to do it yeah <laughs> no. that they left mm -hmm. themselves whoever they were imagining was listening and then consequently us as readers of this poem they left us with the tension of what do you do with that i see a deep yearning to be heard in these in these that that the various schools of people who wrote these um, were looking for the opportunity to write something that could be heard by themselves by whoever else might have written, been reading or hearing these. Um, and that poetry is a desire for an audience, um, perhaps oneself as the first audience and others too. It, it, it can bear witness, I think, yeah. to artistry in the middle of circumstances of life that, that span the range of human experiences. Mm -hmm. So I, I, find them, I find them tender about the human condition. And, and say, for as long as we have been around, we have been making songs and poems, mm -hmm. and we have experienced a deep yearning to know what it's like to be heard. Mm -hmm. And they imagine a God who's listening in some way, shape or form. Yeah, and even if there isn't one, they make that up. <laughs> and, that, and that might be good enough. And that's, I think, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. that's the poem of theology, which is to make something mm -hmm. and then to see what happens. <laughs> I love that. There's a lot of freedom in that. There is. Thank you so much, Patrick. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's great to see you again. Great to see you. You've been listening to Psalms for the Spirit, produced by myself, Kieran Young-Wimberly, with music by Celtic Psalms. On my website, kieranyoungwimberly.com, you'll find links to what I'm up to and opportunities to connect. Till next time, may our spirits find healing and hope in the days ahead. Come, Spirit, come, rescue us, we pray. Shield us and save us.
us and come down to stay.